Hello, and welcome to Holly History, where we discuss what you want to hear. Bringing you the story and answering your questions. No fake news, no alternative facts. Just history, all the time. Hello and welcome to Holly History. We discuss what you want to hear. Mr. D here today and we're going to be discussing uh, the Second World War. And, you know, we just finished up the Great Depression, the New Deal, and our, our history shorts. And we're excited to get on to a new one here. So, I want to kind of talk about the Second World War and kind of how my view of it is with the First World War in relation. Like many historians, I really see this as just one long war with about a 20-year halftime. And it's really hard to separate them because... You just, I don't know, you can't you can't really do it. Yes, they are two separate conflicts. Uh, there was a peace deal after the first one, but really, you know, to me in my mind, they're so intertwined and you cannot understand one without the other. So I almost often like to call it the World War with my students. So they kind of know how I feel about that. Again, if you're going to be using this to help you out with your notes or, you know, with the unit, um, you know, make sure you're listening, keep your notes in the background and you can check it out. If you're using this to review for Reed's exam or just because you like World War II, then just have fun, sit tight and listen in. Okay. So I want to kind of take us, you know, back to like the twenties and thirties, because that's where we can have some of the roots of this stuff. Uh, in Europe, fascism and dictatorial rule or totalitarian rule, I don't even know if dictatorial is a word, <laughs> fascism and totalitarian rule rises up in many nations. That's when one person or a small group have all the power and they're calling all the shots. We're talking about the opposite of democracy here where the people have the power. These, this rises up in many nations due to economic depression and hardship from the First World War and created in the 1920s that's hit the globe. And a lot of countries are suffering. You know, even the United States is going through a Great Depression in 1929 and onward. So it wasn't just the U.S. that was hit by this. And I want to just bring up kind of a general theme in history that I think is true that, you know, when times are tough economically, you know, what have you, people are willing to do things and listen to certain people that they normally aren't willing to listen to if times are good. The first example I want to bring up is uh, we're going to kind of go in, in order here chronologically almost. Um with one exception, is in Italy, a guy by the name of Benito Mussolini takes power in the 1920s. And I'm not going to get into each one of these specifically too much, but Mussolini is the guy that actually founds fascism. Um, fascism being a government system that's usually totalitarian, lots of power with one or two or small group of people, uh, usually heavy military ideals, uh, mili- very militaristic, and uh, very strict government and you know, the state, everything is for the state. You know, think like Roman Empire, right? That's at least what Mussolini was going for, for with Italy. He wanted to bring Italy back to the greatness it once was in the Roman days. And the term fascism is actually derived from something Roman called the fasces. I encourage you to go look that up, but it's kind of a symbol of power in the Roman days. So that's where the word fascism comes from. It wasn't Hitler that started fascism, it was Mussolini. And Hitler actually admired a lot of what Mussolini did and kind of emulated a lot of what he did after Mussolini. So there's the first domino fall of fascism. Italy, Mussolini, fascism. Uh, the next one I want to talk about for you know 
totalitarian rule, powerful government, is the Soviet Union Joseph Stalin. Um, after the Russian Revolution, Vladimir Lenin was pretty adamant he didn't want Joseph Stalin to get the job that he would leave behind, but that's the way it went down. Uh, Stalin's a formidable guy. I mean, he comes to the ranks of some pretty influential people within the Soviet Union to get the top job, the top dog, and to be in charge of the Soviet Union. He will rule the Soviet Union with an iron fist until the 1950s and kind of be the uh, the arch nemesis of the United States uh, after the Second World War. Kind of that unfriendly ally you have there, uh, because obviously we're not keen on communism and socialism, which is what the Soviet Union stands for. But Joseph Stalin will run that country with an iron fist. He'll uh, kill lots of political prisoners, and uh, you know, uh, commit kind of his own genocide in the Ukraine. And it's it's pretty pretty messy. So there's our second uh, big ruler that's going to be coming up here. These personalities. Uh, then we have Japan. Uh, Hideki Tojo will be taking power right as World War II kind of comes around, along with the rest of the military too. Japan had a very military-based rule. If you go back to their, you know, their culture of the Shogun and everything, um, you know, they kind of have some roots of that there. So Japan is going to have a very military-based uh, rule as the, their empire expands in the Pacific. Um, they will be very, very harsh as they invade places like China and try to take territory. Uh, they'll commit a genocide there, known as you know. Um, known as the, the Atrocities of Nanking, and uh, there's lots of other names used for it as well. You can go read about that. And the last one we're going to come to is, and we're going to spend the most time on, is Adolf Hitler in Germany. Now, I want to point something out about Adolf Hitler. He's actually Austrian, but he's ethnically German. That's how he saw himself, and he fought for the German army during World War One. And that'll come into play later. And I want to just kind of mention, you know, a lot of people will like to chalk Hitler up to being insane, crazy, I disagree with that, and I think a lot of historians do too. And why do I feel that way? Because Hitler sees the world through a racial lens that some races and ethnicities are just better than others naturally by blood. He thinks that there's an international Jewish conspiracy um, or a Jewish order, kind of like the Illuminati for the kids out there, like an international Jewish Illuminati pulling the strings in all nations, especially the United States and the Soviet Union, that they're kind of controlling the world behind the scenes, and as a result, they need to be eliminated along with other groups of people. So I want to make that clear. Hitler is basically a conspiracy theorist that kind of gets the, the keys to a major country. i got to credit Dan Carlin with that idea in his podcast, Hardcore History, because it was the best way um, to explain it. Now, he doesn't really come out and have a heavy message on that early when he's trying to rise to power. He couches all of his ideas in wanting to break the treaties of Versailles and get payback and bring Germany back into the sun where it belongs and where it should have been. That's an idea that can sell among almost any German. You know, he'd have a hard time selling the... um, the anti-Jewish stuff, I mean, there was anti-Semitism within Germany before World War II, no doubt, as many countries, especially places like the Soviet Union, but he'd have a harder time selling that to a wider range of people. It's very easy for him to sell the militarism, the the, the Nazism, the, the fascism, the bringing Germany back into the sun. That's an easy sell because many people, you, you know, you look at the Treaty of Versailles, you look at how unfair it was to Germany, that's harder to disagree with as a German person. Right. And so he couches all of his ideas in that and he gets power. And then we begin to see the conspiracy theorist Adolf Hitler. Okay. So this leads us to appeasement because Adolf Hitler is going to be trying to get power and break the chains of Versailles asunder, as he'll say. 
Um, and, and no European nation wanted war, not even the German citizens. Hitler will drag his people into it. Um, they just want to get back to greatness. They necessarily didn't want war. Uh, World War I demolished the, the desire for war in Europe for some time. Europe was never the same, still isn't, after the First World War. And then you add the second one to that, and I mean, my goodness, you know, you have a, you have a continent that's been totally uh, ravaged over the course of, you know, two world wars. So, you know, we, we look at appeasement here, and what is appeasement? Well, on the surface, appeasement is you try to satisfy someone, and uh, it's just not working, right? You know, you got the, the kid in the back seat in the road trip, are we there yet, are we there yet? And you try to appease him, you know, give him a lollipop, give him candy, but it's just not working. And in this situation, that's Adolf Hitler. Um, Hitler wants to end Versailles, get the territory back that he lost, all of those things, and the first move he makes is he moves into the demilitarized zone in the Rhineland. This is supposed. This is an area that borders um, France and Germany, and it's heavily industrial. But it was created as a buffer zone between France and Germany to prevent anything uh, happening again, potentially like the First World War. So Hitler sends forces back into this demilitarized zone, this Rhineland, which is a you know a, a blatant violation of the Treaty of Versailles, and France and Britain, the, the primary allies, do nothing about this. And so Hitler kind of tests them and sees, hmm, let's see what else I can get away with. So he's pushing the envelope. Um, and so the next step is he annexes Austria. Remember, Hitler is Austrian, and the allies, again, do nothing. And finally, we get to a point here, he says, you know what, I'm going to go after this area called the Sudetenland, which is in the east. And if you read... Um, his book, Mein Kampf, from the 1920s, Adolf Hitler was very adamant about this thing called Lebensraum, which means living space for the German people. And he said that would come in the East at the expense of the Soviet Union, most likely, which we'll get into that later. Now, the Sudetenland is in the East. It's in uh, the Czech, um, Czechoslovakia at the time, and it's primarily has a lot of Germans in it. And Hitler's like, well, you know, Austrians consider themselves kind of German. They're Germanic. The Sudetenland has people that speak German. These groups of people, if we go by Woodrow Wilson's idea of self-determination, have a right to be part of Germany. And this is where we get a very famous meeting and a very famous person involved here. British Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain will meet with him in Munich. And uh, something happens as he's going to meet in Munich that actually appalls Hitler. He's applauded by the German people. They're very excited that there's this idea of peace coming and that there will be no war. And Hitler's appalled by that because, again, this is a guy that, you know, he, he wants war. He wants to return Germany to glory. And he sees war is the only way to do that. Even if his people don't want it, he doesn't care. So he's a little appalled by the German people's lovingly accepting uh, Neville Chamberlain arriving. Um, Chamberlain will continue the policy of appeasement. He'll say, okay, if you have the Sudetenland, you're done, Adolf. You can't have any more. Hitler's like, okay, sounds good. And then a few months later, he will take the rest of Czechoslovakia. And it becomes clear that Neville Chamberlain's strategy of appeasement's not working. I mean, Chamberlain gets off the plane from Munich coming back to Britain and says, you know, we have peace in our time and holds up the agreement and is applauded and everything. And then he looks like a, an idiot a few months later. Now, I feel sympathy for Neville Chamberlain. Um, I believe he didn't want war. He saw what the First World War did to his country, and he wanted to avoid that at all costs. It just was that Hitler is this unique guy in this unique circumstance and is dragging his country there. Um, so Hitler, uh, Neville Chamberlain would be kind of like, you know, shuffled out of power, voter no confidence, and then we'll get the guy that, you know, I'll be honest, I'm a huge fan of, Winston Churchill, uh, who becomes Prime Minister of Great Britain for the rest of World War II and will lead Britain through this conflict. Um, the strong leader that, that, that called out Hitler for what he was right away, and that's part of the reason he was selected. So Hitler does something after taking the rest of Czechoslovakia. He actually has his eyes on Poland. Uh, again, you have a lot of ancestral Germans there as he sees it. 
um, that should be part of Germany, at least part of it. But he sees that he's going to come into conflict with the Soviet Union soon. He'd like to set his eyes on France first. That's always been Germany's kind of arch nemesis. And um, perhaps Britain after that. So he says, you know, Joseph Stalin, why don't we just have a non-aggression pact? We're not an alliance. We won't fight each other. I take half Poland. You take the other half. We call it a day. And Stalin says, that sounds good to me. Um, Britain and France, unlike the First World War, actually put their foot down and say, if you invade Poland, game on. Uh, we have war. And Hitler, again, not really afraid of the Allies, not really sure you know, if they'll continue just to appease him, um, invades Poland from the West, the Soviets from the East, and we have the non-aggression pact. And, uh, you know, this is when we finally see Chamberlain's out, Churchill's officially in, and war is declared. And then, you know, the U.S. is watching all of this and staying completely neutral like the First World War. Obviously, we have our own domestic issues. The Depression's still going on in 1939 when Germany invades Poland, which is the event that kicks off the war. Um, the U.S. is staying neutral, like, ah, I've got to stay out of this, i got my own issues. But I want to point out that they're neutral kind of in air quotes. We'll have this thing called the Lend-Lease Act. Um, that will come into play later on down the road that I'm going to talk about. So to talk briefly about the German strategy uh, within Poland, they're going to be using this new style of war known as Blitzkrieg, Lightning War. And essentially what it is, to kind of just put a nice bow on and explain it to you, it combines, uh, you kind of see it at the end of the First World War, it combines artillery, um, air support, infantry, and mobile cavalry, which has now become tanks and motorized vehicles, and in some case horses still, um, it incorporates all those things to attack specific points of the line rather than attacking just one sm um, one large front. Attacks in the past had always been, you know, okay, everybody get up in the front and attack this wide line of 10 miles. Blitzkrieg focuses on speed. It's all about speed. Push, push, push. You know, don't stop for anything. Don't wait for, you know, your other forces keep pushing deeper. It focuses on speed and targeted attacks. So you're going to concentrate the majority of your forces in one small area, everything you've got, and overwhelm the enemy there, and then push behind the lines and roll people up. That's kind of the idea. Every allied power and uh, every, I should say, every power in the Second World War will end up using this strategy. And after Poland falls, about five-ish, six-ish weeks, the phony war begins. And the phony war is this period where if it's about, um, you know, I think it's about nine or ten months um, from 1939 to 1940 where the Allied powers are not directly fighting the Germans in large numbers. The, the French and the British are kind of sitting on their hands, seeing where things go. Um, the French certainly feel comfortable with uh, the Maginot Line and their defensive strategy of just, you know, this is going to be like the First World War. It's, an, it's foolish to attack, and, you know, if we sit here, we're well prepared, and we'll wait on them. Um, and so in this phony war, Norway and Denmark both fall to the, the Nazis. So now if you're like keeping track what Hitler's grabbed here, we've got Rhineland, we've got Austria, we've got Sudetenland, rest of Czechoslovakia, half of Poland, Norway, Denmark, and next in the dinner menu are Belgium and the Netherlands. Um, and then in June of 1940, France is invaded. And the Allies, in my opinion, as many other historians will agree, they should have attacked. They had more supplies, more tanks. They had every advantage on Germany. Um, but like I said... The French are like, oh, we've got the Maginot Line. We're going to be okay. We can be defensive. Let the Germans, you know, beat their head against the wall. Germany uses a daring plan and goes with their Blitzkrieg strategy through the Ardennes Forest. Uh, lots of fighting happened in the First World War here, and it's a very tough area to fight in. Very hilly, wooded, um, not where you want to, you know, bring tanks through. Matter of fact, the Allies thought they couldn't get tanks through the area, and the Germans proved them wrong. And it's all about speed. The Allies can't believe how fast the Germans are moving. And, um... Within months, uh, you, 
the Germans, uh, I'm sorry, within a, a month uh, about, the Germans knock out the French, they pin the British um, by the shore, they're able, the British are able to get the troops out in what's known as the Dunkirk Affair to go look up, there's a famous movie about it that came out recently, and then the Battle of Britain begins. Um, the U.S. Lend-Lease Act comes into play here. We don't want to see Britain fall. We're neutral, only in name. We start supplying the the Allies uh, completely, mostly Britain. We, if Britain falls, Europe's done. Hitler is master of Europe with the exception of Soviet Union, Russia. Um, Britain manages to hang on in the, in the Battle of Britain. And uh, in 1941, you get Hitler's probably his most questionable move. He decides to invade the Soviet Union. He'll break that non-aggression pact. Um, and you remember, he sees the world through an ethnic lens, right? On paper, invading the Soviet Union is foolish. The invasions of Russia have never worked. Ask Napoleon. You'll learn about that in Global. Um, but when he sees the world through an ethnic lens that the Russian people are inferior, you know, they're untermensions, as he'll call them, um, that Eastern Europe, uh, all the people that live there in the Soviet Union are to be, you know, rolled right over. He'll say, we need only kick the door in and the house will fall in the Soviet Union. And he invades Russia. Stalin's shocked. He can't believe Hitler turns on him, which is my favorite because, you know, he's the one guy in history you shouldn't trust. And Stalin trusted him. And Stalin didn't trust anybody. It's it's kind of comical. Um, and then, so the invasion of the Soviet Union begins, and it does not go well for the Soviets at the start. Um, Stalin did not have his military prepared whatsoever for such an attack. And in 1940, I'm sorry, in uh, 1941, spring into fall, things looked very bad for the Allies at and now I want to pick up in the Pacific because this kind of gets forgotten about a lot. Really, in my opinion, some other people, the, this, the Second World War does not begin when um, when Hitler invades Poland in 1939. Now, your textbook's going to say that. You should do that for, you know, um, your reach exams and everything. It begins with Poland. But there's been war going on in the Pacific for a long time. Um, Japan's been expanding their empire, taking territory in Manchuria, China, and other and elsewhere, and they're going to run up against the United States. And the United States is not happy about Japan's actions in the Pacific, and will actually um, sever some diplomatic ties in the late 1930s into 1940s with Japan. As a result, we'll actually stop sending oil to Japan. Japan's an island nation; they need resources, so they're going to keep taking territory. And on December 7th, 1941, Japan attacks uh, the United States in a very surprise attack, very infamous day, as FDR will. Call call it, at Pearl Harbor. Um, Hitler declares war on the United States, which is an odd move because they have a weird, they have a weird alliance going there between the Japanese and the Germans. Um, but we, Pearl Harbor is the worst defeat in U.S. military history, but I want to talk about how the attack's actually kind of a failure very briefly. I know this episode's going to be over 20 minutes. It's fine. So it's actually kind of a, a failure because the Japanese uh, were had supposed to have three waves in the attack, and they get a bunch of battleships. By the way, the vast majority of the battleships are um, able to be salvaged and, you know, see service again. Uh, also, at Pearl Harbor, the three aircraft carriers are out to sea. They're not touched, and those will be the most prized possessions, as we're going to talk about in the Pacific uh, fight. Um, the oil reserves are not touched because the bomber pilots did not want to have too much smoke over the, uh, over the you know, the bombing area. If you hit that in the first wave... You know, you can't see any of your bombing targets. And uh, Yamamoto, Admiral Yamamoto, the guy that plans this, um, is very disappointed in his general under him, Nagumo. Nagumo did not even launch the third wave to go get the oil fields and everything else, and he's very upset. And uh, Yamamoto is supposed to have said, um, it's kind of romantic, we don't know for sure, is, I fear we have just awakened a sleeping giant. Um, and he, you know, Yamamoto understood the United States very well and, and, understood what Japan was up against and he knew if they didn't do this attack, you know, perfectly, they were going to lose the war in the long run as they will. 
So the sides are cast. We have U.S., Britain, um, French resistance in France, and the Soviet Union on one side, and then you have the Axis powers. So those are the Allied powers I just mentioned, U.S., Britain, French resistance, and Soviet Union, and they have the Axis powers on the other side, Italy, Germany, and Japan. The U.S. takes this uh, weird strategy, some people think, and goes with a Europe-first plan to defeat Adolf Hitler. Um, they invade through North Africa. They go up through the boot in Italy with the British forces. It gets kind of bogged down in Italy eventually. And uh, the Soviets, though, on the other hand, with the supply of the Allies, lots of pumping, lots of guns and stuff into there, um, they turn the tide in the east at a place called Stalingrad. They, they defeat the Germans, and then they begin to roll the Germans back in 1943. That's kind of a turning point in the eastern front. Um, eventually in 1944, the Allies planned the D-Day invasion with their commander Dwight D. Eisenhower, be president later in the Cold War we'll talk about, uh, in June of 1944, and they begin their march to Berlin and liberate Europe. There's one hiccup battle, the Battle of the Bulge, um, in the winter in areas of Belgium and France where Hitler decides to throw everything he has against the, the Western Allies, being British and the United States, and uh, the U- U.S. is able, large part, to hold on. They bring Patton out of... Uh, out of not retirement, but suspension for that battle. And then it's right on to Berlin in 1945 to make the Germans surrender with them and the Soviets on both sides. Let's talk about the home front really quick. Patriotism is huge, huge in this war. Uh, very different than we're going to see in like wars that come after like Vietnam and such. And, um, you know, women are working in factories like the First World War, Liberty Bonds, that propaganda is the overwhelming support um, because of the sneak attack at Pearl Harbor. You know, there's a draft, but you barely need it because there's so many men signing up. And I want to point out, we're able to win both world wars, not necessarily because, you know, the military stuff. Yes, we did. That's true. We had great military in both world wars. But we outproduce all the powers extraordinarily. I mean, our enemies were shocked at how much stuff we could produce. Um, But we have some similarities to the First World War, though, with some domestic issues. On the West Coast... Um, we're going to have something called Japanese internment camps. And the Japanese-American citizens are going to be placed in a camp due to a fear of domestic sabotage and spying on the West Coast. There was some evidence of that happening in Hawaii. Uh, very little, but you know the military kind of runs with this and they kind of blow it out of proportion. Um, if you're Japanese and you exist in what's called an evacuation zone, which I believe was everything west of the Mississippi River... Um, I could be wrong on that. I'm in West of the Rockies. I'm not exactly sure of where that line was, but... If you were in the evacuation zone, you were required to sell off everything, get rid of it, if you could. Um, you usually chose to do that because you didn't know what you are going to come back to. And move to these internment camps, which were in horse race tracks and wherever they could find, basically. And so just your ethnicity, you know, you, you were denied your life, liberty, and property. And you were moved into these places. You committed no crime. And one individual challenges, Fred Korematsu, will say, this is a violation of my 14th Amendment rights. Um, equal protection of the law. And you have to remember that, you know, this is an America where segregation is still the law. Brown versus Board of Education hasn't happened yet. Plessy versus Ferguson, segregation is the law of the land. And the court actually uh, decides against him and says, you know, in a time of war, we have to, you know, take measures that aren't ordinary. We saw this in World War One with, uh, you know, the Schenck versus United States case, the Debs versus United States case, that the Constitution has powers for the government that in time of war, um, the government can take certain actions to restrict the rights of individuals so long as those rights are given back uh, when the war ends. Now, it's contra- that's controversial, and some people think, you know, that 
there's a certain line that needs to be tread there. But the government, the Supreme Court did decide that. Um, there were judges on the court, though, that disagreed with the, with that opinion and thought that this was wrong. And actually, by the 1980s, uh, Mr. Korematsu will actually reintroduce documents along with some historians, and the government will actually apologize and uh, admit that they kind of blew things out of proportion with the whole sabotage thing. And um, some survivors, and I believe in some cases their children, were paid reparations in the 1980s and uh, received an official apology. So to the Pacific front of the war, um, the United States and the Allies get, they fall in the Philippines. The Philippines, it was a mess there. And the Japanese are just eating up territory and the U.S. has to surrender a bunch of troops to the Philippines. They'll be treated awful by Japanese force in the Bataan Death March. Um, and it's kind of a similar to the, you know, in Europe, the Japanese are on the move. And uh, finally, the Allies, the United States will hold their own at the Battle of Coral Sea, which is kind of a draw. And then the United States comes up with the strategy of island hopping. The idea is to be able to get their planes close enough to act as mobile artillery and bomb Japan into submission. The first big turning point is the Battle of Midway, where the Japanese will lose four aircraft carriers. And it, in, those things are so important in naval warfare because that's what moves your planes closer to the target. If you don't have airstrips nearby where planes can take off and land, you can't attack a place or have support. So having those airstrips are very important. Um, island hoppy is going to be absolutely brutal. You have to fight for every inch of ground, take every island as you literally hop these islands to the mainland island of Japan. Um, the United States gets its first victory at Guadalcanal. It takes six months for that small island. And eventually we retake the Philippines. Douglas MacArthur is the guy in charge there. Our bonus army friend, World War One general. Uh, he'll come back up in the, in the Cold War here in a little bit. And we retake the Philippines. You know, he, I shall return vows, MacArthur. There's the famous photograph you can go look at. Um, and eventually we drive to the islands of Okinawa and Iwo Jima. Those two islands, it becomes very clear the Japanese are fighting for every single inch of ground and they're not going to give. Um, the casualties in those two islands are tremendous on both sides. And once we take those two islands, we can now turn towards the main island of Japan and the firebombing of Tokyo begins. And the firebombing of Tokyo is absolutely brutal. Tons of civilian casualties in this whole war. Civilian bombing was a common practice. It kind of starts, we like to point out, the Germans bomb Rotterdam and kill a lot of civilians, and then the, the Battle of Britain, and then the British bomb the German civilians back. And the whole idea is that by bombing civilian populations, you can get the civilians to be upset and ask their governments to, to sue for peace and create dissent within a country. So, you know, the, the civilian bombing was used by all sides. All sides did it. The United States, you know, we think of them as the good guys, but they also participated in civilian bombing, as did the Germans who many say, yeah, they started it, and the Japanese did as well. So everybody was doing it. It was a feature of this war, the intentional kind of targeting of civilians um, because you're trying to blow up the factories, which create the stuff, and then thereby, you know, stopping the military. So in, uh, FDR dies in April of 1945, and Harry S. Truman comes into power. He dies of a heart attack, and Truman comes in as president and is told of a project called the Manhattan Project that scientists have been working on with the U.S. government to develop the first nuclear weapon or atomic bomb. Harry Truman probably faces the most difficult decision that a president ever had to make. Uh, he knows this bomb will do awful damage, kill lots of innocent people, women, children, um, you know, non-combatants, as we call it, civilians. And he chooses to use the bomb to end the war by, by bombing uh, two cities in Japan, Hiroshima and Nagasaki. He chooses to do this because he believes that it will save uh, lives on both sides, that indirectly, the estimates he's given, you know, we're looking at anywhere from, I've read from 
500,000 American casualties to over a million to over a million Japanese casualties. It's just horrendous um, what invading Japan could take. There's lots of different opinions, but Truman decides to use the weapon. I'm not going to say if it's right or wrong. I had my students examine that over documents. They answer those questions. But, um, you know, it, it, it was a tremendous... And the world was totally changed afterwards. So Truman chooses to use the bomb, and uh, the Japanese eventually surrender after both of those bombs. I also want to talk about the Holocaust. The Holocaust is the systematic killing of groups of people uh, in Europe um, who were largely, the majority were Jewish by the Nazis, um, Catholic priests, gypsies, Eastern Europeans uh, of all ethnicities, um, political enemies, homosexuals, anyone deemed, anyone deemed undesirable, if I forgot, by the Nazis and Hitler. Um, again, he sees this world through a racial lens. He's trying to purify the world of this Jewish threat as he sees it, and the Holocaust was his way to do that. Uh, the concentration camps are spread throughout uh, Europe in different locations. Auschwitz is one of the you know the more famous ones you can go learn about uh, as something extra. The Nuremberg trials will be held after the war to hold the Nazis responsible. And kind of the big theme of the Nuremberg trials is that you're responsible for your actions in the time of war. Um, and Tokyo will have its own war trials as well. The United Nations is formed, kind of our second try at the League of Nations. And the Marshall Plan will actually come into play, which is the United States plan to kind of rebuild the countries we've just defeated so we don't get a World War III like we did from World War I, so maybe trying to treat our enemies a little bit better. I know I'm rushing here, sorry. And really the big thing to set up our next unit is the Soviet Union and the United States are the two superpowers left standing. And these are two superpowers who have totally different ideologies. Communism and socialism, um, you know, powerful government for the Soviets, democracy, Republican, Republican government, um, capitalism for the United States, and there's going to be a, a decades-long, almost 50-year struggle that's about to happen next unit known as the Cold War, where these two juggernauts will uh, vie for power. So that was our World War II episode. I know it's one of our longer ones. I'm sorry, um, you know, but I wanted to make sure you're getting the good stuff for this distance learning and that you're prepared. Uh, thank you for listening today. I hope you're, you're staying healthy, and uh, tune in for the next episode on the three-part series on the Cold War. Thank you.